Hey everyone, Paul here. We're taking a quick break from our Problem of Evil series to do a couple Q&A episodes over the next couple of weeks. I've done a handful of these Q&A episodes and they happen most frequently over on my Patreon website as a way of thanking those who are supporting this podcast. But I thought this week and maybe next week I would release these to those people who are not even involved in that to release questions that have been asked by people in the Deep Talks Patreon community so that you kind of have a feel for maybe some of the things, extra conversations that are happening over there. And if you were considering supporting this podcast and thought, well, I don't know if I will or won't, well, maybe you'd see some benefit in these sorts of episodes that you would get as a contributor to the work that I am doing. So today's question comes from Sam. Sam has been a um, a supporter of this podcast for, for quite some time now, at least for the last few months. Sam asks a great question, a question about the scriptures and purgatory. So here's Sam's question. Paul, I'd love to hear some commentary about 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. I suppose that historically, this scripture has been used to support the idea of purgatory. And as a result, most evangelicals don't seem to want to touch it. But there seems this inescapable idea that the quality of our works will be revealed with fire, presumably at the judgment. And here lies a powerful metaphor that even if our works are burned up and don't survive judgment, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So doesn't this point towards salvation by works, but maybe something beyond? Is this a metaphor for sanctification? Do we have reason to understand anything more about the reward or loss described in the passage? There seems to be a resistance against any model that involves sanctification for a reward beyond salvation. We all hope to be far more noble than that, (laughs) but I want to be able to share this idea with seekers learning about justification and and, um, sanctification. So appreciative for all the work you put into Deep Talks, praying you'll be able to continue this work, Sam. Sam, thanks. I appreciate that support. I appreciate your support and your encouragement. It's a great question. Uh, first of all, yeah, I hope to continue on doing this work. Uh, I enjoy doing it. enjoy connecting with new friends like you. And uh, hopefully the things and conversations that are happening here are benefit to many other people as well. I think this is a great question. I want to unpack it a bit by first starting with doing a little bit of the necessary historical context, the contextual work that can help us better understand the entire book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as well. First of all, let's, let's get to know a little bit of the relevant um, geography of the region. You might go, what's that got to do with purgatory? Aren't we going to get totally metaphysical about this stuff? But no, this is really important for us to understand the thrust of what Paul is trying to get at in his work um, in 1 Corinthians, in this letter to the church at Corinth. If you're looking for maybe some tips as to how to read the Bible better, I did an episode with Dr. Janine Brown a while back. Maybe that's a good place to begin. Maybe if others of you have questions on, well, why do I want to start here with understanding the context and why do I care to try to understand Paul's intentions for the letter? Can't things just have deeper, more significant meaning than that? Well, I suppose they can, but this is a good place to start. Maybe start with that episode. If you're looking for other resources, I'd be glad to reach out to those of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community, connect you with books and other things that might help you become better readers of Scripture. But one thing I would say, just as a side note, even before we get into the context, 
It's important, and we've talked about this many times, we treat all levels of communication, whether we're talking with a friend, our spouse, a family member, a coworker, our goal in that communication process as a receiver of the communication being sent to us. Maybe that's an email. Maybe it's a, a note. Maybe it's a text. Our goal in all forms of communication is to try to understand the intentions of the communicator. We do this in every effort that we have to communicate with other people. We are trying to get at what their intention is. Now, the problem that happens in our communication, which leads to friction, it leads to tension. If you've been married for any period of time, you get this, right? That what we intend to communicate isn't always immediately discernible by the one we're communicating to. Maybe there's failures in the language that we use, or maybe in this case, as we are picking up a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago to a people in a very different context, in a very different time, actually not even written in our language originally, and we're picking up a translation of this letter, we can probably, it makes a lot of sense for us to, to realize how difficult this process is to try to understand the intentions of the communicator. Now, again, for many people who have been raised in evangelical contexts, which have placed a strong emphasis on the inspiration, inerrancy, the spirit-breathed nature of the scriptures, which I'm not denying here, by the way, sometimes the way that's been communicated again, we talked about this with Dr. Janine Brown, is as if as if God uh, has somehow taken his, you know, God pen from heaven and has written directly in a scroll without any human agency. Or maybe we imagine almost the, the people that wrote the scriptures were caught up and possessed in some sort of trance. I don't think that's what we need to believe about the way the scriptures were composed and written. I think, again, uh, maybe a larger theological theme that we see from scriptures that God doesn't possess people. He inspires. Possession is demonic. People don't lose their agency. They don't lose their individuality in the process of communing with God. We retain our individuality. We retain features that God actually likes about us that are good, our culture. You know, culture is not inherently evil. We can go to our theology and culture series and all that to to maybe help us unpack some of those ideas. So I want to set that from the, from the outset for maybe some of you who have, are new listeners to this podcast and are going, why are we starting here? We're starting here because we're trying to do what we do in all acts of communication, which is to understand the intentions of the person communicating. In this case, the Apostle Paul. And in this case, Paul is writing to particular people. He's not writing to you, to me, living in Minneapolis in 2020. He's not writing to you who might be living in Sydney, Australia in 2020 or in, you know, Los Angeles, California, wherever you might be listening to this program from. He's writing to a people living in the first century in a particular city. And so as we start to unpack this, it's going to help us, I think, reduce some of the possibilities that that we could get a 
particular conclusion that isn't in the range of options for the conclusion that Paul intends to communicate. So, first, let's start with the city, understanding the city of Corinth. Corinth is located just just over 50 miles from Athens in Greece. Now, many of you who have had any sort of experience in learning ancient history at all, or even some sort of cursory knowledge of history, are familiar with the city of Athens, right? Athens was the the intellectual, the philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world. Even long after the, the, the Greek empires and the Greek city-states and their prominence had sided and the, the Roman Empire and the, the political epicenter of the world moved to Rome, Rome was still a very much a Hellenic culture, which means uh, influenced by the Greek way. And Athens still remained as an intellectual and philosophical center. Corinth, however, which is, again, just, just about 50 miles outside of Athens, Corinth had a different reputation. Corinth had been settled, actually, by freed slaves in 44 BC. People that were largely uneducated, they were ethnically diverse. Again, ancient slavery isn't like the American practice of slavery in the South. Uh, It wasn't based primarily on racial prejudice and subjugation. You could become a slave if you were a prisoner of war, if you had debts that went unpaid. Um, Yes, there were oftentimes people, dark-skinned people who were slaves in the Greco-Roman world, and that, but that was primarily because of them and maybe spoils of war. But this isn't primarily a racially motivated um, institution. It is, though, socioeconomic. So people that were slaves were obviously those that were on the lower rungs of the social ladder. One of the lowest, right? I mean, it would probably would have been better to be a slave than to have um, no place at all, to be totally out on the streets on your own. But yet, you're still very low on the social ladder. You've probably come from some low place on the social ladder to become, uh, you know, a slave, to become property of someone else who was rich. So this is people, this entire city was settled by those who had been freed from slavery. And it's known as, Corinth is known as the antithesis of Athens. Whereas Athens has this reputation of, elite, intellectual minds, you know, Ivy League philosophers. Corinth was the freed slave settlement. It was quite the opposite of Athens. One ancient author said this about Corinth, quote, What inhabitants, O luckless city, have you received? Alas, for the great calamity to Greece— such a crowd of scoundrelly slaves. Sounds maybe like what, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi says of Moss Eisley in Star Wars, right? You will never find a more wretched, wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah, that was Corinth. Across the Roman Empire, there was this expression. If someone said, 
you were acting like a Corinthian or to act like a Corinthian. It meant that you were tangled up in all sorts of sexual promiscuity. Corinth was known for that, for sexual promiscuity, for, you know, immoral behavior, even by (laughs) pretty lenient um, Greco-Roman standards. Wasn't just known for that, though. It was actually also known for, Corinth was also known for its production of precious metals, especially something called, which became known as Corinthian bronze. So you have in Corinth generations, by the time Paul is writing in the first century, in you know, mid-first century, we have generations of relatively uneducated freed slaves living there, maybe two, three generations, right? But along with that, you'd actually, you'd also be getting people who are trying to move up the social ladder. And they're, they're trying to get rich off of the mining industry. So this combination of factors made Corinth a really interesting place to live. It was ethnically and socially diverse, made for a, actually a very diverse Christian community. You've got people who have been maybe second, third generation freed slaves, maybe a bit of, you know, cultureless, right? Because they maybe have come from all different places of the world as being slaves, captives, prisoners of war, etc. You know, their parents, grandparents settled in this city. And along with that, you got people that are trying to get rich quick off the mining industry and Corinthian bronze. And so, This is a very diverse place to live, and as we see in Corinthians, it's a very diverse Christian community. While most people in the Corinthian church were Gentiles, right, so people that weren't ethnically Jewish, we do actually see people of Jewish background in as as um, people in the Christian community too. We see people, uh, several people mentioned in the scriptures, a guy named Crispus. Sosthenes were mentioned, uh, and they were previously leaders of Jewish synagogues. So it's not just diverse Gentiles, but you have the Gentiles, and you actually have Jewish believers in Jesus here. We know that probably, for the most part, people in this church were of lower class. That would have been typical of the city. Um, We might consider them more blue-collar, right? Uh, We see this evidenced in 1 Corinthians Starting in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14, gives us that picture. But we know that wasn't completely the case. It wasn't just that this was a blue-collar church. This wasn't just lower-class people, maybe not as educated. It's not the case that 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 would be the entirety of the demographic. You know, we actually can see in the scriptures evidence that there was people there that were really high on the social ladder, too, on the socioeconomic ladder. People like Gaius mentioned, who had a, he had a really big house, right? It was actually big enough to hold the whole church in. And there's also people of po- political prominence, like a guy named Erastus, who both Romans and Second Timothy mention as the city treasurer of Corinth. So you got a guy, at least one guy in the church community, he's got a massive house big enough to host the entire church. Now, you know, this isn't like a a mega church, but it's a substantial community of Christian believers. Enough, again, by ancient standards. If you could host, uh, if you're living in Corinth, and let's say, let's say there were even 
50 people in this church community. Maybe there was more. But let's just go on a, a low number, like a starting church plant, 50 people, 100 people. If that's the case, even in the note itself by ancient standards, you got a big house, right? So we know at least Gaius has a big house, another guy named Erastus. He's the city treasurer of Corinth. So there are people of diverse backgrounds in the socioeconomic sense too. So this is a very diverse church. And with that diversity comes a different set of inherited values from the, the cultural narratives that people bring in. So this is a Christian community. We know as we read throughout, throughout Corinthians, this is a Christian community that has been struggling to live like Christ in the world. Maybe it's the, the narratives that they've brought in from the diverse backgrounds. It's also just kind of part of our biological nature to be tribalistic. And now you've got people that have been freed slaves, up, you know, worshiping together with people that are wealthy businessmen, you know, people of political prominence in Corinth. You've got Jews, you've got Gentiles. And so it just makes sense that you're going to have cultural divisions. This is a community that we can see is struggling with that. They're struggling with cultural divisions. They're struggling to remove themselves from the typical sexual practices of their Corinthian culture. Now, all this background information is really important if we're, I think, going to best understand the specific section that Sam refers to in his question, this question about whether or not Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians, whether there's support in 1 Corinthians 3 for this idea of purgatory, right? This, this intermediate state, it's not, it's not Gehenna, it's not hell, especially in the sense that people use that word who support eternal conscious torment. It's not heaven or the age to come. Is it this in-between place, right, in, in traditional Catholic doctrine, a place where you have to continue to do your penance? We talked a little bit about that in our episode on um, the problem of evil that we covered on Luther and Calvin. Luther was responding to some of the things that had crept into to the church in this sort of theology of penance and you know, people able to pay indulgences so that they could have less time in purgatory. Is this actually being affirmed in 1 Corinthians 3? Understanding the background that leads us up here to 1 Corinthians 3 is important so that we can really truly grasp what Paul's intentions are in the best way that we can. Let's start actually by looking at the beginning of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 3. Obviously, when Paul wrote this, there's no chapters, we don't have verses, but this is a good place to start to help us understand the argument that Paul's making here. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, and this is going to be crucial, I think, to us understanding what is the thrust of Paul's intentions here in uh, what he says in verses 10 through 15. So, first one, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, this is key. This is crucial. Paul is having to accommodate his language 
He's not able to speak in his ideal manner because of the limitations of the Corinthian church, the people in that church community. He says, I, I can't dress you as people who are living by the Spirit. That's Paul's ideal. If Paul could communicate to them ideally, he would be addressing them as more mature followers of Jesus. But he says, I can't do that. I can't do that because you guys are still worldly. He goes on to say, right, he says, um, he says, you're not ready. You're still worldly. There's jealousy among you, right? I can't, I gave, you're not ready for, verse two, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food for you, not ready for. Indeed, you are still not ready, right? In other places, you know, Paul uses that. He says, uh, actually in verse one, he says, you're infants in Christ. And so how we communicate to children is very different than how we would communicate to a more mature adult. So Paul has to accommodate his language to get a deeper point across, one that would hopefully find some way of motivating them out of their immaturity. I think it's important that we get when we read Paul and his letters to the church um, various churches in the New Testament, not just Paul, anytime we read the scriptures. I think it's important for us to understand that in the scriptures, we see that there isn't a singular motivator that works for all people to spur them on to righteous living in the world. Not all people are motivated in the same way. If you're a teacher, a parent, a pastor, a coach, you realize this. You know, anybody that interacts with people in a way that has to, you know, get them to do something or to see their potential or to motivate them beyond their initial state and move them towards a goal state. Anybody that does that realizes there's not one singular motivator that works for all people. Let's take if you're a coach of a sports team, and this will be helpful because sports metaphors are embedded within the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a little bit too. But if you're a coach, you realize you have you have players with various personalities. And, you know, while you, you want to have consistent policies across the board, team expectations, you realize that not all player can be spoken to in the same way, right? I'm, I'm coaching my son's uh, fifth and sixth grade basketball team, okay? There are guys on that team that have never played organized basketball before. There's others like my son, maybe a couple of the players who've, who've, who've played um competitively for a few years. They get deeper terminology. There's different ways that they can be motivated than those who have never played before. There's a, a basketball immaturity there. In the same way, Paul is talking to coaching people that have not played the game. They don't have the love of the game yet. They are not people quite yet living by the Spirit. They are still worldly. And so Paul has to adjust and accommodate his language to find different motivators for them. Maybe some of you have even done personality profile tests, whether that's Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or the, or the, the Big Five personality trait tests, whatever you've taken. Those can all be helpful. 
I found them to be helpful. I've used them in marriage counseling with people before. I've used them in our own marriage. It's um, I've, we've I've, people use them in business settings and church settings to help help people understand the different ways people in their lives are wired and motivated because we are not all wired the same way. So sometimes if you take a test like that, let's say you do the Enneagram Myers-Briggs, you do that with your spouse, or maybe um, you do that in a work setting, what you'd find is that um, the things that might motivate you to change the way you act are not identical to the things that motivate your spouse. The way that you receive love, the way that you feel encouraged is not the same way that your spouse is, or maybe your coworker is, or maybe your boss is. So it's, if we recognize that, it's important that when we read the scriptures that we realize that there is a multiplicity of motivators in the scriptures that Paul employs, because people are different. Now, sometimes we might see these, some people might point to these as being in conflict. In this particular case, we see Paul using a motivator that we might go, hang on, you know, doesn't, doesn't John say there is no fear in love? And yet we see Paul here maybe using a motivator of what we might consider fear to spur people on. I want to explore that here in a little bit. Paul, for Paul, and when we read Pauline theology, we read the works of Paul in the New Testament. We see that for Paul, the highest motivator for Paul is love. Love is the highest motivator. Love is supposed to be the thing that motivates someone and moves someone and stirs someone on in a continued trajectory towards greater Christ-likeness and conformity with God's purposes in the world. The recognition that one is loved by God and the intrinsic desire to love God and to love your neighbor is the supreme motivator for living in harmony with God's purposes. Paul even brings this up later in his letter to the Corinthians. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that moves mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, where there are tongues, they will be stilled, where there are knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, catch this. This is going to be crucial for us to understand the rest. If we go back, when we go back to 1 Corinthians 3, when I was a child, remember a child, Paul just called them infants, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. 
then I shall know fully, even as I am known fully. But now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is so important to get so that we don't get off into maybe strange conclusions about 1 Corinthians 3. Paul here says, and we jumped into 1 Corinthians 13, he, he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, right? Remember, he just says in, earlier in the letter, you guys are acting like infants. You're not spiritually mature. Paul would love to motivate them with love, right? And that's his goal. That's why as he gets towards the end of the letter, he's saying the goal is this. It's to lead to this, that we should look forward to the day in which we are. We shall know him fully, even as we are known by him. We are loved by him and we will love him fully. We will have our appetites and our desires changed. The greatest of these faith, hope, and love is love. And I, I want you guys to be motivated by that, but they can't yet. They can't be motivated yet because they have not reached that level of maturity yet. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians 3 appeals to a lesser motivator. It's still true, but we have to get why he's doing this. The highest motivator would be, you know, if they were mature, it'd be like, hey guys, you know, you're not acting this way in the world, but Christ has called us to love and to love each other just as we have been loved. And those that have that depth of maturity, that have that experienced, that, that not just a, the knowledge of love in a propositional sense, but in a participatory sense, have participated in the love of God, have their appetites transformed right? And so if that were the case, Paul could go there, but he can't, can't quite do it yet because they are immature. So what does he do? He, ha he appeals to a lesser motivator, one that isn't ideal, but one that Paul sees as still perhaps a necessary step, just as you have to communicate to children in a way that you can't communicate to adults. The recognition that one is loved by God and the intrinsic desire to love God and to love your neighbor hasn't been made manifest in the Corinthian community. That supreme motivator is not working. It won't work quite yet because they are spiritual infants. So in this case, in this case for Paul, there are other motivators. In this case, there is a stern warning. Now, the stern warning, I want to make clear, I don't think, and I don't think there's evidence in the early church of this, and we see the this... Um, development of purgatory as a later development, I don't think this stern warning has anything to do with the later Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. There is a warning embedded here, but the warning I don't think is, you know what, you're going to have to do penance for an unknown period of time to, you know, work out your salvation in a way to pay for your own debts, the debts of your sin. That's not the case. In this case, Paul brings up other motivators that we find biblical support for elsewhere. The first motivator that we see is tied to this idea that in the age to come, there will be tiered rewards for varying levels of faithfulness to Christ. Now let's read here, let's actually read the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10, that Sam had the question about. For by the by the grace of God, actually, we should probably backtrack. We should backtrack. 
to include what's leading up to that. What after all? Let's go to verse 5, right? We'll just go through the whole chapter. What the heck? (laughs) You are still, verse 3, I don't think we've read verse 3 yet. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. By the grace God, now this is where um, Sam's question, the scripture that Sam's question originates from begins. Verse 10, but by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one laying, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D there, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. What has been built survives. The builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. While at first on the surface we might read this and the thing that catches our eye right away is this idea of escaping through the flames and there is a certain degree of fearfulness attached, a sternness to that warning. The first thing, though, that Paul actually, the first lesser motivator that Paul appeals to here is actually this idea of tiered rewards for varying levels of faithfulness to Christ in the age to come. And this is actually something that we see in other places of Scripture. Consider even what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus promised, uh, that's the end of the scripture, Jesus Jesus promised his disciples tiered rewards, like additional rewards for their additional faithfulness in following him. So Paul here appeals to that. He appeals to that first, that motivator. Like, guys, build, you, know, you, you build your life on, on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, because your work's going to be shown for what it is. The day's going to bring it to light. And there is in, nestled into this, as we're going to see, there's nestled into this, uh, a, for the people in Corinthians, a, a, an implied invitation to experiencing greater rewards for greater faithfulness. And I'm going to show you how we get there in a second. But the second thing that we do see, we do have to admit that there is another motivator presented here. And the second motivator is a bit of righteous fear. On judgment day, one one stands before the judgment seat 
or as we're going to talk about in a moment, the the bima seat, a Greek word bima, B-E-M-A, what has not been subsumed, we could say what has not been subsumed in sanctification or in more Eastern Orthodox language, in theosis, see this process of continually becoming more like Christ, what has not been subsumed in that process and turned over to him over the course of our lives, Paul seems to hint at those things will be consumed and shown to be worthless. Only that which is good is going to remain in the consummation of all things. When God renews and restores all things, it's logically necessary that that which hasn't been renewed needs to be discarded, consumed, right? Now, Paul assures the church at Corinth that he's not talking about gaining immortality through good works. How do we know that? There's one foundation, verse 11, one foundation, it's Jesus Christ. That's it. You can't build your life on anything else. On that judgment day, the foundation, the thing that actually gets gets you immortality is Christ. You can't have that through good works alone. Why is that? Well, a little bit of larger biblical anthropology here. Not everybody agrees on this, but uh, the key for me is the biblical as biblical anthropology establishes that humans are not inherently immortal. Humans are mortal by very definition. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they're not inherently immortal. The death is a different kind of death. The death from eating the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil leads them into this experience of separation, of a trajectory of life that moves away towards God. It's not about um, Im- immortality or eternality of our ontological essence, whatever that is that makes us humans. That was the tree of life, which humanity was already banished from. They hadn't had that, right? And we see that trajectory throughout the rest of Scripture. Immortality is a gift that comes when one is united to the eternal and immortal Christ. We are fundamentally mortal. How do we become immortal? Our humanity has to be connected to Christ's humanity, which is perfectly united to the divinity of the eternal Godhead, Christ being fully God, fully human, our humanity united to his humanity, and yet he is fully human, fully God, so we get to participate in the eternal Godhead. That's how we receive our immortality. Paul's clear. We're not, he's not saying that you become an immortal participant in the life of God through good works. But, 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 there does seem to be a warning about how we use our life. How we move and act in the world as we are, have become spiritually, ontologically united to Christ. Now, does Paul mean there's going to be some sort of literal fire that's going to consume the dross of our life and that we should fear some sort of physical pain? Does Paul pointing to some sort of purgatory process? I find that to be highly unlikely. And the reasons for that actually come as we read the entirety of 1 Corinthians. When we jump into 1 Corinthians 9, we see that I, I don't think we have to come to some sort of conclusion that there's, this is, Paul is clearly intending to say there's going to be some sort of literal fire 
people experience, there's going to be some sort of pain or some sort of extended purgatory process. The reasons for that come later as we read 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians 9, starting off at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, the city of Corinth wasn't just a wretched hive of scum and villainy, nor was it a place for people to get rich quick off of the mining industry hoping to climb the social ladder, the city of Corinth was also host to the annual Isthmian Games. Athens had the Olympian Games. Corinth had the Isthmian Games. And these Isthmian Games were a close, close second to the Olympics in terms of popularity, notoriety, cultural importance. At the end of those games, just like the end of our modern Olympic Games, Athletes would compete for tiered rewards. In this case, in the Isthmian Games, they would receive a victor's crown. Maybe you've seen some of those pictures of people running with that sort of wreath on their heads, right? That's what they're competing for. At the end of the, at the, end of the Isthmian Games, athletes would appear before the judgment seat or the bema seat. And they would receive their rewards for how they competed or ran their race. Now, anyone of, any one of you who have competed in serious athletics and has won the top prize in whatever field that is, you know the sense of satisfaction, at least the momentary sense of satisfaction that it produces, which is kind of Paul's point, right? That those people compete for momentary satisfaction, momentary glory. You should compete for a crown that lasts. But those of you that have done that and competed and won top prize, whether those winning a tournament, a competition of some sort, you know the sense of satisfaction that it produces. You also know if you have competed, but you haven't trained and you haven't been strict in your training or your nutrition or the things you needed to do to win that competition. Also know the feeling of what it's like to fall short. You also know the feeling of, let's say, you're a basketball team, a football team, a baseball team, and you don't even make the playoffs. I'm a big basketball guy. Here in Minneapolis, our Timberwolves are not doing so well, to say the least, <laughs> here in this 2019-2020 season. I think last night capped a, another 11-12-13 game losing streak. <laughs> it's disappointing, you know, and, uh, you know, the star, star center, Carl Anthony Towns, he's, uh, yeah, he's a, really is a magnificent player, but he's expressing his disgust. He's becoming more vocal about it. You know, the Timberwolves are not going to make the playoffs, which leads all whole sorts of talk on sports radio among sports fans and people who follow the Timberwolves to start analyzing 
what are they not doing right? What are they wasting their time on? What are they wasting their money on? Maybe another player is, you know, getting too high of a paycheck. It's eating into cap space. We're paying Andrew Wiggins too much, right? Boy, we didn't right, make the right move at the trade deadline. We haven't picked up the right free agent. There is this assessment as we do not reach our goal and come f- very, very short of that. There's this reassessment of the things that we've done. Maybe so-and-so, maybe this player didn't work hard enough in the offseason. We need to get somebody a shooting coach. There's this analysis of all the things, all the ways in which the activity of this team, though they're still playing the full 82 games, is filled with dross. The fire has tested it and found it to be unfitting of the gold of winning the championship hardware. Let's consider maybe for those of you that aren't, uh, you know, professional sports team fans, maybe you do some running, you get out and jog, maybe you've run a 5k, maybe you do a marathon from time to time. Good for you, right? The runner, let's consider the runner in the Isthmian games who maybe skipped some days of training. Let's maybe make it more modern and relevant. Let's say you're competing in a marathon, right? And this marathon has a prize and you see that prize as being really, really valuable. Let's consider the runner who is competing in a marathon and maybe skipped their necessary days of training and the proper proper nutrition. They skipped some of their training days and they just got tired. They said, you know, I'm just going to sit around today. I'm going to pound some McDonald's. Now, they don't know this. Maybe they do, but they haven't thought this through. What they have done in that moment is they have sacrificed some of their future for the now. And we always have this juggling act, right, of how much do we give some of our now towards the future goal that we want to have? How much of our future goal um, is worth sacrificing some of our now and the comforts of now for? The runner who has sacrificed his future goal for the now experience of sitting around watching Netflix, eating McDonald's on that day before the Bema seat, right, is going to feel like they totally wasted their time on inferior pursuits of pleasure. When other people are receiving the reward and they have that sense of regret, that sense of what? That sense of loss. They're going to regret. They're going to feel like they wasted. What is it going to feel like? It's going to feel like those days they skipped training and they just sat around and pounded a bunch of Big Macs. That's going to feel like wood, hay, and stubble. I think Paul's reminding the church that we get to synergistically participate with the work of the Spirit, that the Spirit, we get to participate, we get to respond to the Spirit's beck and call, we get to respond to the loving invitation of God to deeper communion and community with each other, to to do that and, and to work out the effects of our salvation in the world around us. And for Paul, those that don't, will see the Big Mac wrappers in their trash bin at home as such an inferior prize to the gold medal they could have had in a life pursuing the ultimate goal. I don't think Paul's point is for the Corinthians to be speculating about the metaphysics of how this works. I don't think Paul's laying out, again, some sort of 
metaphysical claim for some sort of intermediary spiritual state where souls go that have to go through uh, more penance in order to pay off their sin debts. I don't think that was what Paul's bringing up. It's not how the Corinthians are. The Corinthians are not listening to this speculating about the metaphysics and, man, is my soul going to be trapped in some intermediary state between heaven and hell? I think that's a later projection. For the Corinthians hearing this, what's a much more likely conclusion? Well, I think Paul's using relevant images from their culture. Things like how you test the purity of metals and, and minerals. How would you do that? Through fire, right? How do you figure out if something's gold? If this is, you know, is the proper Corinthian bronze versus some other counterfeit, you're going to test that with fire. They're going to get that. They're going to get the Isthmian Games happen every year. It's like the biggest event. It's the Super Bowl of Corinthian culture. They're going to get the reference that Paul brings up later in 1 Corinthians 9 about running for the prize and standing in, in 1 Corinthians 3, standing before a judgment seat. And this really clever connection Paul's making between the day, capital D, standing before the reward seat of Christ the judgment seat of Christ, and the comparison between that and the standing before the, the, the Bema seat and the, the end of the Isthmian Games and the sense that we would feel this great sense of satisfaction for a race run well all the way to the finish line, which is what Paul hopes to do in his synergistic cooperation with the work of the Spirit, versus the sense of loss and devastation the sense that you've lost and wasted your life on inferior pursuits. He does this in order to find some way of motivating them and spurring them on towards ethical living with the hope that in the end, right, 1 Corinthians 13, with the hope that that motivation, that motivation might remove from them, even if it's fear at the beginning. Again, we have to keep in mind that Fear can be a possible motivator. It's yes, it's inferior to love, right? And this is why this is in harmony with what John says in in First John that perfect love casts out all fear. When we have moved on towards maturity, fear becomes less and less of a motivator. Just as an adult, hopefully, as your your prefrontal cortex develops, you need less and less fear as a motivation for right living in the world. Instead, you find other motivators. Now, children, just like puppies, <laughs> don't always have that. And you could consider the church at Corinth a puppy dog church. They are a puppy dog church. They are immature. They are going to have to deal with perhaps a sense of fear, a sense of fear that would eventually lead them beyond their current state of immaturity. Sometimes a children, a child, a young child or a puppy dog only knows to avoid things based on the possible punishment that would happen as a result. This is part of a normal stage of human development, something we've also talked about in connection with the meaning crisis in, in a previous episode. They, they only know the correction. They only know the correction as a way to move them on beyond their 
the primitive behavior. If we even want to connect this in a sense to maybe some of the conversations we've had about biology and the insights of, you know, evolutionary psychology, we could even say that these base animal instincts to survive, right, to to procreate those, those base animal instincts do not automatically lead to right living in the world. The way we ought to live is not the way that we always are living, obviously, right? So Paul has to appeal to maybe the threat of survival, right? Because maybe that's the only thing at this point that they have that motivates them and their sexual appetites. You know, he's, he's got to move them with a bit of fear and maybe get, them to, get them to take a step beyond that. But the goal isn't to live in that place. Perfect love casts out all fear. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love never fails. Love never fails. Paul is trying to lead the Corinthian church believers there into a deeper understanding, to have deeper motivators. And in that process, he's used some imagery from their context, which is helpful. All of that to say, Sam, in answer to your question, I don't think this is some um, text that's intended to support some sort of idea uh, comparable to purgatory. I do think you're on the right track. This is a metaphor for sanctification. This is a metaphor for uh, a motivator to push somebody towards deeper sanctification if the higher motivators just aren't working. Paul is a bit pragmatic in this sense. Be better for you to come off on that day, you know, if 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 that if that motivator keeps keeps someone from a little bit less dross and worthless activity in their life, then for Paul it's worth it. Is it the ultimate goal? No, the ultimate goal is someone living in love, knowing they've been fully known by God and desire to grow in deeper communion with them and to grow in deeper community with others in this this glorious exchange of love, that's the goal. But in order to get there, in order to get there, he might have to take some steps with these people to move them beyond the destructive place where they are currently at. Sam, thanks for your great question. And again, for those of you that perhaps want to pose questions and have these sorts of dialogues, I invite you to become members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. It's a really helpful way of supporting this podcast and the work that I'm doing. If you also want to support this podcast other ways, I would invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. I don't need the pats on the back, but what I'd love to do is be able to connect with new people who are searching for ways to reevaluate their faith, to rebuild it. Maybe some of that have never even lived or grown up in the Christian story or finding a way to navigate their deep existential questions and they're they're interested in the Christian story that perhaps this podcast would be of help to them as it's been probably to some of you. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Reach out to me on Twitter if you have questions about other things. You know, if you got feedback on this podcast or other things that we've talked about. Had a great uh, conversation last week with uh, Justin Brierly, the host of Unbelievable. If you haven't listened to that one, go back, give that a listen. Again, we are going to return back to the Problem of Evil series, taking some time, though, to answer some questions from listeners over these next couple of weeks and to afford me a little bit more time to do my research and due diligence on the, the, the remaining subjects and people we want to cover 
in that series. Thanks again for listening. And again, we'll talk again soon, friends.